Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is an old friend of mine, one of the most distinguished American diplomats of his generation, Ambassador Nicholas Burns. Nick served in the US government for nearly three decades, holding senior positions under Presidents George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. He was a member of Secretary of State John Kerry's Foreign Affairs Policy Board and a foreign policy advisor to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. He's also a long-term associate of and advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, this year's Democratic presidential nominee. Nick is a Harvard professor and the executive director of the Aspen Strategy Group. Last year, Nick and his wife Libby visited Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra as the Lowy Institute's Rothschild Distinguished International Fellow. You can tell from that daunting list of offices that Nick is a busy man. So I'm grateful that he's taken the time to speak with me on the director's chair, direct from Westport, Massachusetts. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me on your show. All right, Nick, let's start with your upbringing. You were born in Buffalo, New York. You were raised in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And like Jake Sullivan, who was my guest on the last episode of the director's chair, you're the product of a big, rambunctious Irish family. Tell us a bit about your upbringing. Well, that's right. Well, I'm I'm fourth of five, and that was a rather small family in our extended <laughs> family, because uh, we have more than sixty first cousins. My my father's parents had immigrated from Ireland, from Clare and Limerick in Western Ireland, when they were teenagers. They were typical Irish immigrants, farmers, uh, didn't have much schooling, and my dad uh, grew up uh, youngest child, first in his family to go to college, a typical immigrant story that'll be familiar to Australians as well as Americans. So I grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, a, um, a suburb of Boston. Obviously Catholicism was important to us. We were a very religious family, went to church every Sunday. My brothers and I were altar boys. And then when we were older readers at church mm-hmm. and, had wonderful parents who really, especially my dad in this respect, inculcated a real sense of history. We visited lots of Civil War battlefields. We watched every uh, World War II movie ever made about mm-hmm. the uh, Pacific campaign and the Atlantic campaign. And, and that was my early stimulus to try to, that really brought me beyond the world of my hometown to try to understand the world at large. And after high school, you went to Boston College, you studied European history, you spent a year at the Sorbonne in Paris, and then you went to DC to study for a master's at SAIS. So what was it that interested you about the world? You know, at the beginning, Michael, it was the Vietnam War. I I was a typical teenager, probably more interested in American baseball and girls than anything else. But the Vietnam War came into our community, into into my family. Uh, We argued about it around the dinner table. I was an altar boy when I was younger at two funerals of young men in my parish who died in the war. Uh, I I really didn't understand it when I was younger. Uh, I was not of draft age because the war ended, at least for the Americans, the week I turned 17 years of age. But Vietnam War demonstrations at the nearby college, Wellesley College, and uh, just a lot of debate in my school and among my friends about whether we were doing the right thing. And that was really the impetus that got me interested in the world. At that point, of course, no computers. You, you go to the family 
Atlas and searched for Vietnam. And it gave me my introduction to the Asia Pacific. And that was the reason I decided to study history and pursue a career in diplomacy, because I was one of those young Americans who felt we'd made a terrible mistake uh, and that we had to atone for it and that we couldn't make those kinds of mistakes in the future. And, and, and that's really, I think, I trace my interest in global affairs to that war. You joined the Foreign Service. You didn't end up in Asia. You served initially in Africa and the Middle East at the U.S. embassies in Waukeshott in Mauritania and Cairo and Jerusalem. What was that like as a young American diplomat in the field? It was exciting because my, my, my experience overseas, I, I, I was an exchange student in high school in Luxembourg, and then I, I, I went to the Sorbonne. I studied at the Sorbonne mm. for a year. And so I spoke French. I only really knew Europe. I was quite excited to go to West Africa and then to Egypt and then to Israel. Before Egypt, my wife Libby and I studied uh, Arabic for mm -hmm. six months. The State Department sent us to language school, and that was our job, six hours a day. So we spoke rudimentary Arabic, but it was exciting to represent the United States. It was an interesting time in Egypt because, of course, Sadat had been assassinated. Hosni Mubarak had taken over. The United States had made a very big bet on Egypt. And so we had, I think at that point, America's largest international aid program was in Egypt. Mm. We were redoing the phone system, the sewerage system, building roads and bridges. We wanted to help Egypt succeed. There was a time of some hope. I was very low ranking. My mm -hmm. first job was to interview young Egyptians or Egyptians who wanted to immigrate to the United States or come on tourist visas. And I was the American citizens officer. And that meant that I tried to take care of Americans who got into trouble in Egypt. But you learn a lot at that young age. And I was young enough, both in Egypt and then in Jerusalem, I went directly from Egypt to uh, Jerusalem, to be able to be on the street, meet young people. I wasn't high ranking, I could get to know the students. And that was a valuable experience for me to really try to understand Islam, its culture, mm. at a time of real fermentation the early 1980s uh, in the Arab world. Now, every day when you'd walk into the, the lobby of these embassies, you'd walk past President Reagan's photograph, I guess, on the wall. I did. I want to ask you about your views on Reagan. Now, Democrats now draw a sharp contrast between Presidents Reagan and Trump. But at the time, of course, Reagan was deeply unpopular with liberals in the US and around the world. And he was often derided for being a warmonger or for being too old for the job. You were distant, I think. You, you, you didn't see a lot of Reagan close up. But, but what was your impression of Ronald Reagan as a president? Well, my impression then uh, was that Reagan was someone who was really the anti-FDR, and FDR was one of my boyhood heroes. Mm -hmm. Reagan was the president who said, I think infamously, that government is the problem mm -hmm. in the United States of America. And I didn't agree with that. When you're a serving officer, of course, and you understand this, Michael, mm. we're nonpartisan. And so I, you know, you don't you don't share your views on on the president with anyone else. And so I served loyally as I was asked to do. But I didn't vote for Ronald Reagan in 1980. I voted for Jimmy Carter and I voted for Walter Mondale in 1984. And I really had a disagreement with Reagan's domestic agenda. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt that he was inattentive to the poor. He was often, at least for me, on the wrong side of a lot of major social issues like gun control and the death penalty and abortion. And so, um, you know, it wasn't someone I supported, but as a government official, of course, I had to support him. Looking back, and I think I felt at the time, he was very strong 
in confronting the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War, mm. just after the Soviet failure in Afghanistan. And I credited him for that. He also gave the American people a sense of confidence after Vietnam, after the, as Jimmy Carter termed it, the malaise, mm. the time when, he, when Jimmy Carter was president. Reagan was a buoyant figure. He was a very skilled politician. The economy rebounded. America started to do well in the world. The Soviet Union declined. All of that, I think, contributes to it, the positive part of Ronald Reagan's legacy. Mm. From 1990 to 1993, you worked at the White House as the Director for Soviet Affairs in George H.W. Bush's National Security Council. And I think you wrote last year in The Atlantic that Bush was a master diplomat. Bush Sr. is another Republican president who at the time probably was underestimated, perhaps largely because he was not re-elected, but perceptions of him have improved over the years. What were your impressions of George H.W. Bush? Oh, I admired him. I admired him then. I admire him still uh, in death. Condi Rice, the young Condi Rice, before she became mm -hmm. uh, National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, Condi and I were both in our mid-30s. We got to know each other in 1989 when I was at the State Department working on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And she said, come over to the White House for six months and then you can go back to the State Department. I thought that would be a great experience and I stayed for five years. Mm -hmm. And the first, nearly three of them, were with the Bush administration. I admired George H.W. Bush, Father Bush, Bush 41, as we call him. Mm. I think, Michael, he was the best prepared person in foreign affairs ever to be elected president of the United States. Mm -hmm. He really didn't have a peer. Mm. He'd been CIA director mm. and UN ambassador and minister to China, mm -hmm. uh, and he'd been eight years vice president. He was tremendously skilled and knowledgeable. He knew all the world leaders. I thought one of his best qualities, in addition to his sophistication about the world and his knowledge, he was a listener. Mm -hmm. And when you go in to brief him, as Condi and I would, I was quite junior, he would listen, he would show respect, he'd ask questions, he kept his counsel, he didn't often tell you what he was going to do, but he listened to everybody in the room and conservative and liberal voices, and then he'd make up his mind. And he made a very a lot of correct decisions. If you think about what he was involved in, mm -hmm. he was a key figure in unifying Germany mm. with Kohl and Gorbachev. Mm. He formed the Gulf War Coalition, which was a tremendous success. And he was able to handle, especially at the time when I was there, 1990, 91, 92, a Gorbachev who was waning in power, mm -hmm. Yeltsin who was rising in power, and he was able to keep good contacts, relations, understandings with both men as the Soviet Union crashed and burned by Christmas Day 1991. So I, I think he's one of our best foreign policy presidents of the last 100 years. Your boss at the National Security Council was Brent Scowcroft, who passed away in August at the age of 95. And David Ignatius, another distinguished international fellow at the Lowy Institute, described him in an op-ed for The Post as embodying the qualities of integrity and competence. Why was Scowcroft the gold standard for national security advisors? Well, to understand that role, the national security advisor, the, the NSC was created in 1947 along with the CIA. It was meant to be a clearinghouse for all the ideas and options that would come from the various federal departments into the president of the United States. It was meant to be a place where those options could be looked at objectively and that um, the president would get the best advice from his government. Mm -hmm. Brent Scowcroft was the only person since 1947 who's been NSC advisor twice, Gerald Ford, mm -hmm. and then for George H.W. Bush. 
he uh, worked with quite a skilled team, President Bush, James A. Baker, the Secretary of State, Dick Cheney, who was then the Secretary of Defense. Scowcroft was selfless. He was judicious in putting people's views forward to the president, even if he didn't agree with them. He ran a very tight ship, a very organized process where every voice was heard. And he's widely credited with being the most skilled person who's held that job because he didn't have a big ego. He didn't put himself forward. He wanted to serve the president. He was very close personally to the president. They used to go up to Kennebunkport, where the Bushes have a home in the summer, and fish together. When I worked for both of them, Brandt, uh, General Scowcroft, was with the president constantly, mm. 18 hours a day on every trip, and was himself retired uh, at that point, Air Force general, one of America's great experts on arms control and on the Soviet Union. And so he was the right man at the right time, the right personality. And I think most Americans, Republicans and Democrats who serve in government would say he did the job the way it was designed to do in a way that no one else has really been able to do it. These were heady times for a young diplomat like you. You're in the White House at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the unification of East and West Germany, the election of Boris Yeltsin. In 1990, you remember Charles Krauthammer wrote that article in Foreign Affairs called The Unipolar Moment, in which he observed right. that the US was the unchallenged superpower. Is that how it felt at the time? What was it like to be in the cockpit of world power when America's Cold War adversary quit the field? It was a profound feeling. It was a thrilling experience to be at the center of American power for a young American diplomat. I remember, Michael, actually, I used to take the metro to work and I would walk through Lafayette Park, which mm -hmm. is just opposite the White House, into the north gate of the White House. I would, you know, once a week kind of pinch myself that I was there at that moment because I had grown up as a kid during the Cold War, six years old during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I remember the fear uh, in my parents and the adults at that time about nuclear war. And we really thought the Soviet Union would go on forever, at least in our lifetime. I never imagined until 1988 or 89 that the Soviet Union might actually collapse and disappear. And so to be working for President Bush and General Scowcroft, to be in the meetings with Gorbachev and Yeltsin, to be in the inner councils trying to decide the policy. I'm, I'm the note taker, by the way. I'm not the policy maker. Mm -hmm. It was exciting. It was profound. It was an extraordinary moment in history. And, I, and we felt a sense of liberation from the sort of Damocles that President Kennedy had talked about of nuclear war hanging over the, our heads. If you think about popular culture, Neville Shute. Of course, an Australian wrote On the Beach, mm. Stanley Kubrick's great film, Dr. Strangelove. I mean, the popular culture had been terrorized a little bit by the threat of nuclear war. We felt liberated from it. We felt that democracy was ascendant both in Asia, Pacific, as well as in Europe, as you saw all those communist Warsaw Pact states topple one after another mm. in 1987, 88, 89, and then 1990. It was a great moment to work at the White House. You stayed on at the White House after Bill Clinton was elected president, serving as his senior director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasian affairs. What do you make of the criticism that drunk on victory, America boxed in Russia during this period and essentially created Putinism by, for example, extending the boundaries of NATO up to Russia's borders and failing to treat Russia with the respect that it deserved? Do you think in retrospect that you pushed too far? 
I do not. Uh, I think that criticism is completely misguided. I'm highly subjective because I was very involved in NATO enlargement, both Mm -hmm. in Washington, but also as ambassador to NATO some years later. Mm. We made every attempt, President Bush and then President Clinton, I worked for both of them on this issue, every attempt to try to help the Russian Federation when it became an independent state, as well as Ukraine, succeed in the world. In 1993, in fact, President Clinton called me about 10 days ago because he wanted to talk about the fact that we've been able to convince the Russians Mm. in 1993 and 1994 to take thousands of their troops out of Latvia and Estonia. And they'd been there since Stalin put them there to occupy those countries illegally and unjustly in 1940 at the beginning of the Second World War. And um, President Clinton made every attempt to try to help Boris Yeltsin. We went to the World Bank and IMF for multi-billion dollar assistance programs. I remember going to the G7 summit in Tokyo in the summer of 1993 with President Bush. We were able to get extraordinarily large contributions of capital and loans, concessional loans to the Russian Federation. We felt there was a possibility Mm -hmm. that the Russians could actually succeed. We were invested in it. Both parties in the United States were. I don't think anyone can question the good faith effort that the United States that Germany, that Britain, that Australia, that Japan made to try to help that country make an extraordinarily difficult transition from communism to a a nascent democratic system and from a command economic system to capitalism. By the mid-90s, Michael, it became clear to us that corruption was so pervasive that the economic bet was not paying off, that nationalists were returning to the fore in Russian politics that we had to begin to think about NATO expansion because if we if Russia went south and Russia returned to authoritarian rule, we didn't want the Russians to believe that they had a chance to, in effect, reoccupy Eastern Europe and recolonize all those states that Stalin colonized after Yalta and Potsdam uh, beginning in 1945. Tell me about your impressions of Bill Clinton as a foreign policy president. Is there any truth to the argument that that the Clinton administration was a, a missed opportunity for American foreign policy? At the time, it felt very contested. But in retrospect, when you look back on that period, it, it was a period of relatively unconstrained power for the United States. And there were a lot of challenges, but not as many as during the Cold War or in the, in the decades afterwards. How would you rate Clinton as a foreign policymaker? I thought he was really quite gifted in Mm -hmm. foreign policy. And, you know, Bill Clinton came to the White House. He was a young man. He was in his Mm mid-40s. I think he was 43 or 44 years Mm -hmm. old, one of our youngest presidents. Mm -hmm. He did not have a foreign policy background. He'd never had a job in foreign policy. But he had very acute intelligence, very intelligent, sophisticated man. He had been intrigued by Russia since he was a Rhodes Scholar at uh, at Oxford. Mm -hmm. One of his closest friends and roommates at Oxford was a, a guy named Strobe Talbot, mm-hmm. Time Magazine correspondent. He brought Strobe into the administration, and I worked very closely with Strobe, who was our ambassador at large for Russia. And Bill Clinton was a student mm-hmm. of foreign affairs. He dove into these issues. Uh, we spent a lot of time with him in the spring, summer, and autumn of 1993, uh, and he mastered the issues. He was also a very gifted politician. And frankly, you know, as president of the United States or prime minister of Australia, part of the job in dealing with your peers is not just to know uh, the data and the issues. That's important. Mm. But it's to be able to connect with people. Bill Clinton connected with Boris Yeltsin 
personally. Mm. And I think they developed a great deal of trust in each other. I was with them at their first meeting in Vancouver. We met Yeltsin there in Canada. They were similar personalities. They were both very outgoing, boisterous, enthusiastic people. Mm. Clinton had an insatiable interest in people as well as in ideas. And, and they came together in the Russia issue pretty nicely. And, and that relationship continued to be good throughout the eight years of the Clinton presidency. And I just say, Michael, looking back on the Clinton presidency, it was a time of great power peace. Russia and the United States had the best relationship we've ever had. China, uh, of course, under uh, Jiang Zemin at the time, was really trying to build China Inc. Mm-hmm. and was not contesting Japan, Australia, United States in the Pacific as it is now. That was a pretty placid, successful time in the history of the United States, the Clinton presidency. The presidency of George W. Bush was was quite different. You served W. as ambassador to NATO 2001-2005 during the 9-11 attacks and then the Iraq war and Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs later in the administration. What was George W. Bush like as a president, and how do you compare him to his father, George H.W. Bush, as a foreign policymaker? You know, he didn't have the foreign policy experience and depth when he came to office that his father had had. Mm-hmm. He, was, he, was, he was similar to Bill Clinton in that respect. He was also a young man in his 40s, and he had worked in, as you know, his, his career. He worked in the oil business. Mm-hmm. He had been in state politics, governor of Texas. He was, um, I, I must say, he's a very disarming person because he has a self-deprecating sense of humor. Mm-hmm. When you meet George W. Bush, lots of jokes, lots of wisecracks, good-natured. He's a very good person to meet. Mm-hmm. He's friendly. Mm-hmm. He's interested in people. I was also quite taken with him in one respect, when he would sit with world leaders, and I, 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 had, I saw a lot of him when I was ambassador to NATO because NATO was in the thick of things after 9-11. And then when I was under Secretary of State, I was over at the White House a lot uh, attending meetings with him. And I remember, I remember him meeting Helen Clark, the Prime Minister mm. of uh, New Zealand in the Oval Office. And when he had foreign visitors in, he listened most of the time. He was the man with a thousand questions. Mm. He had this interest in people. He wanted to draw people out and make them comfortable. I think he also wanted to, he understood that the United States is great power and he didn't want to dominate meetings. And I was impressed by that. I was impressed with him. After 9-11, he was able to rally the country. Mm -hmm. He united the country in the weeks after Mm 9-11. He did the right thing by going to the United Nations initially for the invasion of Afghanistan to get support from the United Nations for what the U.S. and U.K. and Australia were doing, and also um, when NATO went in. So I think at the beginning of the crisis, he made a lot of positive decisions. I should tell you, I was in Brussels at NATO, a very new American ambassador. And when we were hit hard that day on 9-11, I couldn't reach anybody in the White House, State Department, and Pentagon because they'd all been evacuated. Mm. And the Pentagon had been attacked. Then my phone started to ring, and it was the Canadian ambassador, David Wright, who said, have you thought about invoking Article 5 of the NATO treaty, Article 5 being the key feature of NATO, an attack on one of us shall be deemed an attack on all of us. Mm. And that was a deterrence that kept the Soviets out of Western Europe during the Cold War. The great irony is that Article 5 was included in the NATO treaty of 1949 at the insistence of the Europeans because they wanted to ensure that Canada and the United States came a third time across the pond in the 20th century to defend Europe. The irony is that when we invoked it on 9-12, the day after 9-11, it was Europe and Canada coming to the rescue of the United States. And we all felt as Americans, I called Condi Rice, 
the morning of September 12th and I said, look, I need the president's authorization. We're going to vote for Article 5. That really means we're going to go to war. The allies will go to war with us. Mm -hmm. And she said, go for it. And I said, I really need the president's authorization, Gandhi. She said, he's had a really bad day. Go for it. And before I could sign off on the phone to go vote for this authorization of Article 5, she said, let me, let me just say one more thing. She said, it's good to have friends in the world. Mm. You know, we felt pretty shattered on 9-11. Uh, we were stunned by the attack. And Condi's reaction was, it's good to have allies. It's good to have these alliances of the type we have in NATO and we have with Australia in the alliance with your country. And I know she feels strongly about that. That has been one of my abiding faiths in American foreign policy. We're stronger with our allies, so you need to respect your, our allies and you need to treat them well. Well, let me come back to alliances in Australia, but, but while we're on the subject of NATO and allies, it's good to have friends in the world. President Trump doesn't necessarily agree with that. He doesn't believe in alliances. He seems to think most allies are scroungers. How have you felt as someone who was ambassador to NATO and had to deal with the, the NATO ambassadors in the aftermath of 9-11? How have you felt about President Trump's running down of NATO and the, the kinds of things he said about NATO allies and indeed all of America's allies? I am absolutely opposed to what he's doing with NATO and by the way with some of the Pacific alliances mm. like South Korea. You know, the famous quote, the cynic knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. President Trump comes from a real estate background with no foreign policy experience. He thinks the United States can act alone in the world. He thinks a unilateral approach. I think he sincerely believes this, that the America, America is stronger acting on its own and not being dragged down by allies who don't pay enough to help us defend them. And he's absolutely wrong about that because I think most of us who've worked in government, both in the Republican and Democratic Party, career people like myself would say the great power differential that the United States has with China mm -hmm. is that we're in alliance with Australia and Japan and South Korea and in partnership with India, the Quad. Mm. And the great power differential between the US and Russia, of course, is NATO. Mm. And so, and, and Michael, in recent public opinion polls in the United States, Support for NATO and our Pacific alliances is running in the 60 and 70 percentage points. Mm. You can't get 70% of Americans to say the sky is blue these days, mm. but you can get them to say that they support NATO and support Australia. Mm. President Trump is suffering. Uh, his credibility is suffering in the United States. It is an election issue mm. that people think, I think a lot of voters believe that he has weakened the United States by uh, tearing down and diminishing our alliances. Let me ask you about President Trump's approach to Russia. You're a long-term observer of Russia. You know about the Russian system, the Russian deep state, the Russian intelligence services. When you think about this after years now of observing President Trump and Russia, how do you explain Mr. Trump's refusal to criticize Vladimir Putin for anything, whether it's the apparent poisoning of Alexei Navalny, or whether it was putting bounties on the heads of American troops, or any other number of sins. Do the Russians have something on Trump? Or if not that, what is the explanation? Because it seems that this refusal to criticize Putin and Russia is inconsistent, not only with America's interests, but even Mr. Trump's own political interests. Well, I agree with you on both counts. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. It's hard to know exactly why the president is so infatuated with authoritarian leaders. Mm. 
And, and I don't know if the Russians have anything on them. And lots of people say that, but there's no, there's no proof. Mm -hmm. I think the answer probably lies in the fact that the president, our president, is an authoritarian personality. And he's clearly gravitated towards Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping, President Erdogan, mm. Viktor Orban, and Vladimir Putin. And he clearly doesn't respect Angela Merkel, Justin Trudeau, Emmanuel Macron. And so I think the answer is uh, that the president admires the power that these people have, and he's playing up to them. I'm reading John Bolton's book. Mm -hmm. I'm not a close friend of John Bolton. We had a difficult relationship when we served together in the George W. Bush administration, but the book is revealing. Mm. Uh, and John Bolton is about as conservative as you can get in our country. And yet chapter and verse and quotes from the president's infatuation with Kim Jong-un, which is beneath the office of, our, of the president, and, and against contrary to American interests. And the same thing is happening with Putin. When I learned, Michael, watching George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton mm. and Barack Obama deal with the Russians is you've got to be straight with them. You've got to be crystal clear about where our interests are and how theirs conflict with us. You've got to be willing to be brutally honest and candid in one-on-one -on -one conversations with a guy like Vladimir Putin. And Trump is unable to do that. He's unable to deliver a tough message. And I think the lowest point, one of the low points of his presidency, was this infamous summit meeting in Helsinki in July of 2018, when President Trump said he believed Putin over the U.S. intelligence community, over whether or not Russia attacked us in invading our election in 2016. So this has hurt the president here politically. It's hurt him in the Republican Party. It's hurt him with a lot of voters because most Americans are smart and they understand the threat that Russia poses to us. Now, Nick, you're a senior foreign policy advisor on Joe Biden's campaign, and you declared for Biden very early on, and you stuck with him even when he was the underdog. Why did you do that? Tell us about, uh, if you can, a couple of experiences you've had with Joe Biden over the years, and what you think about his worldview and his priorities if he's elected president. I knew him as Senator Biden uh, when I was ambassador to Greece and ambassador to NATO and then back in Washington. And what I really admire in him is he does have deep knowledge of foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. He has a high sense of ethics and morality, which is, which is vital for any democratic political leader. I think he's got very good judgment. He's practical. He's not an ideologue. And so he's willing to look at practical solutions to problems. He understands that compromise, both in the American legislative system as well as in foreign policy, is sometimes necessary to get things done in the world. When I was ambassador to NATO, we had a really tough time over the Iraq war. You'll remember that Germany mm -hmm. and France broke with the United States at NATO on the Iraq war. We were badly divided. And I remember Senator Biden came out to visit and spent a couple of days with us, with me. And I remember I was able to invite every ambassador from every NATO country, including the German and French ambassadors, to uh, my dinner table. And, and Joe Biden not just charmed them, but spoke to them in a way that I thought helped us rebuild some bridges. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I was uh, under Secretary of State, we were normalizing our relationship with India. We'd placed sanctions on in India for 30 years over its nuclear weapons program. And I was the point person in trying to build up our relationship with India. We had to have two laws passed uh, by the Congress to lift sanctions against India and to allow American companies to help India with its civil nuclear power. It was a very uh, difficult vote. Lots of people, including 
My own Senator Ted Kennedy, someone I was friendly with, uh, voted against it. Joe Biden, who was in the opposite party, he was not Republican, obviously a Democrat, mm -hmm. he led the campaign uh, for the vote. And I worked very closely with Senator Biden and his top assistant, a good friend of mine, Tony Blinken. And Biden rallied the Senate, made the argument, persuaded people on the merits that we had to achieve this big strategic breakthrough with India. And he really engineered those two successful votes in the Congress. So I've admired him for a long time. And Michael, look, we, we've had enough of Donald Trump. The lies, the deception, dividing America by race, terrible things that he's done to harm the United States. Joe Biden, and I'm supporting him because he'll unite us. He'll tell the truth to people. He'll try to work with the Republican Party when he can do that. And I think he's been able to unite the Democratic Party, which is a pretty tough thing to do. It has a history of being a fractious party. You see that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, of course, Kamala Harris is his vice presidential nominee. This is United Party now. And one of the reasons is Joe Biden is someone who can bring people together. So I think it's exactly who we need at this point in American history. Let me ask you about China, Nick. Let me put to you that formidable though the Soviet Union was, China is a more formidable adversary for the United States. Why do you have confidence that the United States has the appetite for a prolonged decades-long competition with this huge adversary? I think there, there are a lot of people in the Asia-Pacific region, for example, who think the Obama administration was outmaneuvered by China. There's a lot of Asians who would say that China is a resident power in Asia, whereas the United States can always withdraw to North America and, and play a kind of a global balancing role. Why, why are you confident that the United States is up for the challenge of competing with China? We have to meet the challenge because we're an Asia-Pacific power as well. It used to vex me a little bit, Michael, when I would go to Beijing or the Chinese would come to Washington when I was undersecretary of state. And, you know, the Chinese line was, after they got through with Taiwan, they would say, Asia for the Asians. Why are you Americans meddling when we would bring up difficult issues? And I'd say, check out the map. Check out where Hawaii and Alaska and the West Coast of the United States, California, our most important state, is a Pacific Rim state. So the United States has every right to be in the region. We live in the region. And we can't avoid this competition with China. I agree with you. China is going to be a much more uh, powerful competitor than the Soviet Union ever was because of China's economic power. Mm. And because of the strategic vision of its leadership through initiatives like the Belt Road Initiative, I think the key here, Michael, is that we're competing. We have to compete, hopefully peacefully. We have to avoid a war with China, but compete. We have to compete for military positioning. We do that with Australia and Japan in the Indo-Pacific. We have to compete for the next generation military technology as AI and quantum computing are militarized. We're competing there. We're going to compete. We have to compete to keep China honest in the World Trade Organization to stop its theft of intellectual property. That goal unites Japan, Australia, Europe, the United States, Canada together in common cause. We ought to be approaching China together. And I think in a way, and this sounds like I'm a cold warrior, mm. we have to compete ideologically because Xi Jinping is forcing that debate. He's making speeches saying that the authoritarian system is the right system for a lot of different countries. I don't think many Australians or Americans would agree with that. But I think the key here, I know you've talked to some really smart people about this recently in your podcast, Jake Sullivan, Kirk Campbell, Michelle Flournoy, all friends of mine. The key is to, as we compete, 
We've got to have enough self-confidence to also connect with the Chinese and cooperate where we can. And I would say we should be cooperating on the coronavirus, on the pandemic, on the search for a vaccine and on the distribution of one. We're not doing that. Both sides are competing. We ought to be cooperating together on climate change. Joe Biden has said if he's elected, he will put the United States back into the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Remember how that came about in 2015. Two of the authors, among many, were Xi Jinping and Barack Obama. And I think as the world's number one and two national economies, we're going to have to have lines into our each other, our central banks, our finance ministers, treasury secretaries, to make sure that we're aligned in trying to help the world be relieved of this recession. So the idea that you could just compete and that they're our enemy, and some Americans are on the right are using that word, that is completely misguided. It has to be a sophisticated combination of competition and cooperation. All right, final question, Nick. I want to ask you about Australia. You and I spent a bit of time together on the road last year. We talked a lot about Australia. What did you learn? What were you surprised by in Australia? And if you look ahead, if Mr. Biden is elected president, what kind of relationship would you envisage between Mr. Biden and Mr. Morrison, the Australian Prime Minister? What what are the potential areas of common ground, but also are there some areas of difference that you see? Well, let me say first, Michael, I, I remain very grateful to the Lowy Institute in Sydney and to you personally for the fellowship uh, where I was able to spend three weeks in, in Sydney and Canberra and in Melbourne mm-hmm. and also go uh, up to Queensland and out to Uluru. Uh, it was a great experience. I'd spent time in Australia before as a diplomat, but I'd never spent quality time. What impressed me about Australia? Obviously, the people, uh, the sophistication of the people about the world. Uh, the sense, uh, the real sense of alliance with the United States and the commitment to the alliance. Because I was, you were able to uh, connect me to people in the Australian government, throughout mm. the Australian mm. government, in Canberra and the business community. And I was impressed by the depth of the commitment to our alliance with you and yours with, with us and was able to get a, a much deeper appreciation of our cooperation, not just military cooperation, but the cyber, the intelligence cooperation, what we need to be doing in the Indo-Pacific together diplomatically. Impressed by, I knew this about Australia, but we do share, we're immigrant societies. We're multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multi-racial societies. There's a lot we can can learn from each other in that respect. Mm -hmm. A lot of Irish, Michael, in Australia, as you know, including members of my grandfather's family. When he went to America, some went to Australia. I never was able to find them. Bless them. Bless them. I'm tremendously impressed by the 28 years of uninterrupted economic growth. I know that's come to an end, as it has everywhere, but what a record for Australia. And frankly, uh, I met politicians in both of your big parties, just impressed by the quality of people. I didn't meet the prime minister when I was there, but I hosted him a month ago. Mm at the Aspen Security Forum. It had to be virtual this year. I directed it. And when Prime Minister Morrison came on and spent an hour with us, with Margaret Brennan of CBS News interviewing him, I introduced the Prime Minister. Uh, he really held his own under some tough questioning. I was impressed by, uh, by his depth of knowledge. I was impressed by his commitment to the U.S. I was impressed by his honesty because, you know, he noted where the differences were. What will Joe Biden do? I think I think my my pals Jake and uh, Kurt Campbell have probably told you Australia is going to be uh, I think one of the most important allies to the United States in the next decade or two for Republican and Democratic leaderships. In this case, I hope it's going to be a Democratic one. The most important issue for us is China. 
and therefore Australia, Japan, South Korea, India. These are our most important partners. I would say I'm not just being kind or polite on your podcast. I think pound for pound, we probably have a deeper, better relationship with Australia than just about anybody. I think the quality of our relationship is that good. Now, it's on, it's on us to keep it that way and on you too. But I think, obviously, uh, China, our allies, keeping the peace, not allowing ourselves to be dragged into conflict, and yet competing and holding our ground and finding ways to work with the Chinese when we can, but oppose them when we have to. Uh, Australia and the United States are, are going to have to be together uh, in, in this very, very difficult um, set of circumstances going forward. Nick Burns, thank you for joining me on the Director's Chair and telling us about your journey from altar boy to ambassador. Uh, we can hear your, we, we've heard your phone pinging in the background, so we know it reminds us again how sought after you are. Thank you for your time. We hope to welcome you back to the Lowy Institute headquarters in Bly Street in another capacity, perhaps in the future. But in the meantime, thank you for speaking with me today, Nick Burns. Michael, thank you for your friendship. Thank you to the Lowy Institute, and it's been a pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove, with production assistance from Madeline Neist. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.